This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Brian. And today we're reading Moby Dick, a 19... Oh, no, wait, 1851 novel by Herman Melville. And uh, I just read it very recently after having heard about it since I was probably three or four years old. And uh, I think it may be the best book I've ever read. <laughs> How many times have you read this? Uh, I've, I've lost count. Um, I read into this every few months. Um, ever since I was about uh, 22. Um, wow. I've taught it a couple of times. Um and uh, you know, I've read out loud parts of it to my children and to total strangers and just to the air. Uh, in fact, uh, on, I have a I have a few YouTube playlists that are on my rotation, and uh, one of them has uh, a bunch of Moby Dick music because it has inspired a bunch of heavy metal bands. <laughs> That's funny. I, I should can can I tell you a couple of stories about it? Sure. So I. I I'd heard about the book when I was a kid, and it was usually in tones of terror or, or, or dismissal. You know, Pah, don't read that. It's a waste of time. Or, oh, my God, you can never read it. And um, when I was a student, both as an undergrad and as a grad student, I was doing um, British literature mostly. Um, I didn't do a lot of American lit. So when I was my fifth year at college, I think, um, I signed up for a class called Madness, Meaninglessness, and Deviant Sexuality. I mean, how could you resist, right? How can you not sign up for a class that's about wow. deviant sexuality? It was it was so great. And we, we come in the first day of class, and the prof shows up. He's all wearing black, and he looks really dour. He says, if you think this class is going to be fun, you should drop now. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is going to be great. So we get, the, we get the syllabus, and the syllabus for every week has a different book and a couple of themes for each book, like uh, – we read Oedipus, and they're like, you know, the complex. We read uh, Jean Genet's story, and it was like about childhood and sexuality. Then week one, Moby Dick, and the themes were a paragraph long. Wow. Paragraph, you know, week two, Moby Dick, another paragraph. And we read it, and I couldn't stop reading it. Um, and the prof told me afterwards that he started writing his master's thesis on Moby Dick, and it drove him insane. He had to um, he had to uh, go into therapy um, because the book was impossible to write to. Every time he wrote it, like it would it would push back at him like some living thing. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, here's my second story. When I was a, a young prof at a small liberal arts college, I was teaching all kinds of crazy stuff. I was teaching lots of science fiction, gothic horror, comic books, lots of technology, and I, I think they drew some of the older faculty to be concerned about me that you know maybe he wasn't really a serious literature guy so then one semester i taught moby dick in two different classes they all became my biggest fans Uh it was like this is it you know if you can teach that you're one of us you know um so i i I don't know how you want to proceed jesse i i can just go in any number of directions about this um i'm kind of a fanatic yeah, I I I can totally see how anyone could become a fanatic of this. If I I don't think I would like this book at all if it was forced upon me. I I came to it 
uh, after 44 years of avoiding it or so. Um, <laughs> but uh, as a young, well, yeah, very young person, I did go to see and I did uh, really appreciate uh, re- revisiting the sea. I haven't been back to sea since then. And I think it it, it is it's a book about everything, so yeah, we can talk about everything. But uh, just in re-listening to the really excellent LibriVox narration, it is most excellent. I, I'm going to edit it all together so everybody can hear it. Um, but uh, there was a, a scene that struck me again, um, I think, in the rereads that will inevitably happen. There's a scene where, right, uh, I think this is chapter two or so, where he's he hasn't even got to uh, Nantucket yet. He's just in the in- initial stages of going to sea, and he sees uh, that is Ishmael sees a painting uh, in a pub yes. or a tavern. Yes. And uh, I think this is this is one of the things that really good writers sometimes do. Uh, Philip K. Dick once reviewed, I think, uh, his own book in the middle of the book. Just if you change one word from, you know, from one thing to the other thing, it becomes a review of the the book itself in the middle of the book, you know. What book was that? And, uh, let me think. I think it's um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep or huh. Man in the Hat Castle. I would have to recheck, but I, I just did. I, when I did the show, I found this this review in the middle of the book and I just changed all the words and read it back, you know, changed all the, whenever it said, um, uh, oh yeah, it is man in a high castle because he, he starts talking about, um, the art that he's making. Um, you know, it's a free form art, uh, like earrings or brooches or something. And he says this object, right? This, this piece of metal, Right, and every time you see object or piece of metal, you just replace it with book, <laughs> and suddenly it becomes a review of the book, and it's exactly about what the book's about. And similarly, in this uh, painting, um, I think it's a message about how this book is, and it's just wonderful. So I want to read that here. Um, so it starts like this: On one side hung a very large oil painting so thoroughly besmoked and every way defaced that in the unequal cross-lights by which you viewed it, it was only by diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it and careful inquiry of the neighbors that you could in any way arrive at an understanding of its purpose. Such unaccountable masses of shades and shadows that at first almost thought that you almost thought some ambitious artist in the time of New England hags had endeavored to delineate chaos bewitched, but by dint of much and earnest con- contemplation and oft-repeated ponderings, and especially by throwing open the little window towards the back of the entry, you at last come to the conclusion that such an idea, however wild, might not be altogether unwarranted. Yes. But, but it keeps going. But what most puzzled and confounded you was a long and limber, pretentious black mass of something hovering in the center of the picture over three blue, dim, perpendicular lines floating in the nameless yeast. A boggy, soggy, squitchy picture truly enough to drive a nervous man distracted. Yet was there a sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable sublimity about it that fairly froze you to it? till you involuntarily took an oath with yourself to find out what marvelous painting meant. 
Ever and anon, a bright but, alas, deceptive idea would dart you through. It's the Black Sea in a midnight gale. It's the unnatural combat of four primal elements. It's a blasted heath. It's a hyperborean winter scene. It's the breakup of the icebound stream of time. But at last these fancies yielded to that one portentous something in the picture's midst. That once found out, and all the rest were plain. But stop, that is, does it not bear a faint resemblance to a gigantic fish, even the great Leviathan himself? In fact, the artist's design seemed this, a final theory of my own, partly based upon the aggregated opinions of many aged persons with whom I conversed upon the subject. That's you, by the way, Brian. <laughs> the picture represents a Cape Horner in a great hurricane. The half-foundered ship weltering there with its three dismantled, dismantled masts above, oh, sorry, alone visible, and an exasperated whale proposing to spring clean over the craft. It is the enormous act of an impaling himself upon the three mastheads. Isn't that amazing? It is so funny. It is so knowing. It is so, every sentence is beautiful. Uh, it's just, you know, he's stopping the book to give you a little reader's guide right there. And, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's it's lovely. Like when I first read this, I, I'm looking at one of my copies. You have to imagine I've got a stack of copies here. Um, nice. And I, I've in the first paragraph, I have a little marginal note of heh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my I, I I started reading this aloud to my mom, and she I'm saying this is so funny, and she's like, it's not funny. I'm like, how can you think this is not funny? This is hilarious. This is a this is a comedy book. And it's already reflecting back to the first part of the book, uh, that third paragraph. Um, in fact, the artist's design seemed this, uh, a final theory of my own, based partly based upon the aggregated opinions of many aged persons with whom I conversed upon the subject, right? right that's not right. just me. That's also the totally bizarre introduction to the book, the etymology, um, yep. which is – and then the uh, uh, extracts supplied by a sub-sub-librarian, yep. um, which are – Fantastic! We're doing this on on Twitter. I mean, before the book begins, it goes right off the rails. You know, yeah. it just uh, it's it's got this this etymology which um, is hard to pin down, and apparently the uh, it's not always right. Uh, the Hebrew word is actually the word for behold, um, and then the the extracts are just freaking random. You know, you've got anything yeah. involving the word whale, and as I, as I showed you on, on on Twitter, my favorite one is from quote something unpublished. <laughs> yeah. What? What? Yeah. What could this be? I mean, it's swirling around and around and around. There's all those opinions. Those are all the aged yeah. people. You know, right yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, it, it goes right back into the uh, not just the Bible, but it, it quotes from everything. It's like he he did a, a Google search for yeah. whale. Yeah. Right. And clicked, found every single mention of whale and collects that into a chapter. And clicked, I feel lucky. Right. It's it it is this is I can see why this book is a complete flop when it comes out because what the hell is it right it's just like well, I, there's a, there's a funny story about this I mean very briefly um, up until this book Melville was a commercial success he had written uh, a few books about whaling and life on the seas that were really popular um, like mm -hmm. Umu and Taipei and uh, he started writing this apparently I'm gonna slides a lot of details here but basically he wrote a draft that was a giant whaling story and that was the main purpose and then he read or reread some hawthorne 
and it just lit his brain on fire. And he's mm-hmm. ah, symbolism. And, yeah. and you know, there's the, it's dedicated to Hawthorne. Yeah, uh, and he quotes Hawthorne in the extracts, and he revises the book completely, and it becomes this, and it it throws his career sideways. The book is a flop when it comes out. His next few books get even stranger than this. Um, wow. There's uh, Pierre or the Ambiguities, great title, which is about, mm-hmm. among other things, incest and how it sucks being a commercial writer. Um, <laughs> he wrote, uh, when you're writing con- about incest, yeah. That, that's oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. And then he wrote uh, The Confidence Man, his masquerade, which is almost impossible to describe because it feels like it was written in the 1950s. It's, uh, mm. it's an enormous prank. The whole book takes place on a steamer in the Mississippi on April 1st. And one of the characters is probably the devil, and he goes around pranking people. Um, And that's kind of the whole book. It has almost no plot as we would think of it. And when it came out, one of the New York newspapers wrote this headline, Herman Melville insane? Um, And it ended (laughs) his career. He he stopped writing. He became a – he took a job doing something else to pay the bills. Uh, thought of himself as a failure. Um, he composed one more story, which became his most famous for a while, um, uh, which you know was this terrible tragedy about um, a sailing ship that got turned into uh, uh, an opera by Benjamin Britten. But he never really published it. Um, I mean, this Moby Dick is this weird hinge where Melville kind of breaks out of the 19th century and leaps into the oh. 20th with experimental stuff. I mean. Uh, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm 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 ranting. No, no, you're you're exactly. Uh, this is this is the I everything I heard about it doesn't give you any hint as to what I mean. Yeah, it's there's a whale in the book, but it's nothing. I started to watch one of the adaptations, and I think you know what, this isn't going to work because they they don't get yeah. it. You yeah, can't yeah. get. I, I don't think it. I don't think this can be any kind of in any kind of medium. Other than this novel, I don't think it. Like I was thinking, well, maybe an audio. No, that doesn't work. Comic, no, because <laughs> no matter what you visualize, yeah. uh, it will not work. It no, will it, not work. It's like uh, Tristram Shandy. It's such a uh, an anti novel. Um, yeah. Now Bradbury. It's interesting because Bradbury wrote the screenplay for the uh, John Huston movie, which had mm-hmm. um, Gregory Peck weirdly cast as Ahab. Um, right. And he apparently Bradbury was unhappy with it, and that he later wrote a um, a radio play version called something like um, Ishmael Two Thousand, something like that. Um, yeah. Which is a, a science fiction version. It's got Christopher Lee doing one of the voices. And he's uh, in outer space, right? Yeah, it's wild. It's it actually feels closer to the book. Um, yeah, it would it would have to. I mean, it, it, this is this is. Uh, as close to science fiction as you can get if you uh, think of whaling, uh, you know, nautical uh, earthbound adventures in which technology is not the major focus. It yeah. is, it, I mean, it, it's a lot like Conrad, actually, as well. I was thinking um, yeah. with, with the foreshadowing, I mean, I, I would guess that Conrad could have read this and said, yep, I'm going to do something like that with my little book here. In his, uh, in his third language, because... Right, in- Heart of Darkness. No, I mean Conrad grew up speaking Polish, and he learned French, and they picked up English on the side. I mean, he's a uh, 
But what's what's weird about this sometimes is I find um, I found Melville much more terrifying than um, than Conrad. I love Conrad, um, mm-hmm. but um, you know, there's a lot of arguments in, in Gothic literature about the place of uh, Moby Dick um, because besides being hilarious like Edgar Allan Poe, it's mm-hmm. also absolutely terrifying like Poe. There's so many dark and and I mean ultimately you know it's a tragedy, it's a disaster, everything goes wrong. Um, you know, it's uh, everyone dies except for Ishmael or whatever he is, because we never know his name. I mean, the mm-hmm. first line of the book is a lie, basically. You know, call me Ishmael. What? But anyway, uh, we, you know, it's um, and there's so many passages of just gut churning fear. Um, you know, there's that one about uh, uh, here. Let me see if I, if I could find this for a second. Uh, sure. There's a uh, let's see. Painted. See, I'm, I'm, I'm actually using about three different uh, texts here. Uh, there's one about the sharks devouring everything um, when they start eating each other, um, and uh, it becomes this nightmarish passage um, where uh, the sharks are chewing. Well, I'll come back to it because it's it's, sure, it's, sure. it's one of my favorites. Um, but the uh, it's a terrifying book. Um, it doesn't. It uh, so I want to put. So it's got the science fiction aspect, right? It's got mm-hmm. the. Uh, um, it has the uh, fantasy aspect uh, in so many ways. Um, you know, when, remember when Pip um, gets uh, drowned and then comes back to life? Um, Pip, who is this tiny little guy who's always being stomped on by these gigantic whalers, and then uh, you know he finds this. Um, uh, uh, he goes to the bottom of the sea, right? That's right. And uh, something bad and weird happens to him. Here, let me read this. Um, it so it happened that the boats, without seeing Pip, suddenly spying whales close to them on one side, turned and gave chase. And Stubbs' boat was now so far away, and he and all his crew so intent upon his fish, that Pig, Pip's ringed horizon began to expand upon him miserably. By the merest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him. But from that hour, the little Negro went about the deck an idiot. Such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though. Rather, carried down alive to wondrous depths where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes. And the miser merman wisdom revealed his hoarded heaps. And among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous, God-omnipresent coral insects that out of the ferment of waters heave the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it. And here speaking it means uh, to communicate with it, like one ship to another. And therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense. And wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe, feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. It's it's like a Clark Ashton Smith passage. Mm-hmm. But it's you know, he's kept alive jeeringly. And then from then on, you get these little bits of <laughs> Pip is walking around going, Where's Pip? 
anyone seen Pip? And these right. huge harpooners are like getting out of his way. And who who alone can Pip talk to after this? Ahab. <laughs> Ahab now has a friend, someone who understands him. I mean, what do you what do you do with a passage like this? My God, coral insects that made the stars and the planets. Holy cow! I mean, I I love that every chapter begins with one point and then just veers sideways off into some strange, strange location um, that you can't necessarily predict where it'll go. I mean, when I was, I mean, I had students that said, you know, this sounds like a guy who was massively high, right? You know, let me tell you about whale skin, right? And they go off (laughs) in this different distance. Um, You know, and I can, I can see that. I, I, I can see that. Um, but it's 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 so visionary and inspired. I mean, there, there's a bit about mastheads, right? Where mm-hmm. um, you know he talks about uh, being on top of the masthead and how people in old times, without ships and dry land, would be on mastheads. They were just sticking up out of the out of the ground, pillars, marching off into space. I mean, it's it's definitely very strange. Indeed, it's. Uh, even the very end, uh, well, not the very end, but the the last chapter, it it's so strange because it leaves you saying, "Wait, what does he mean by that?" <laughs> so here's the last line of the last chapter. Now, small. Please. This is just after the ship is sunk, and uh, our our hero, who, by the way, basically disappears uh, as soon as he gets on the ship. Basically, I mean, we just we see everything what everyone else is doing and almost hear nothing about what he's doing. Finally, he sort of returns back to the plot once everybody's drowned. Um, And he said it goes like this. Now small fowls flew screaming over the yet yawning gulf. A sullen white surf beat against its steep sides and then all collapsed. And the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled 5000 years ago. And I'm like, 5,000 years ago? What, what does he mean? <laughs> Why 5,000? Not 6,000 or 10,000. And it's it's because it, it, it symbolizes all. The, it, it, I mean, it's it's so, just the sounds of the words being read is beautiful. But on top, on top of that, you just have this amazing sort of feeling of, wow, holy crap. And then we get the epilogue. In which uh, we find out how he, you know, g- was able to tell this story, but isn't that all that all that? Uh, it, it's 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 like the opposite of most regular books, where the writer sits down, starts typing, right, and then finishes the few drafts and makes sure it does autocorrect on a few things, right, and then yep, sending that to the publisher. This one is like, no, going to go back and interweave the whole coffin theme all the way through. <laughs> I mean, it ends it, it ends with him talking about the family of coffins, right? The ship is the coffin. The, sh- the ship is the, uh, uh, no, the boats are the coffins. And then there's an actual coffin. And then there's uh, the coffins of, of um, all, uh, all, uh, all coffins are ships, right? And then my keeled soul, right? right? And then, and then the ship is a hearse, and it's like, holy crap, this is a great metaphor. <laughs> and that's just like one tiny metaphor throughout the whole thing 
that is just completely <laughs> interweaved. There's a guy named Coffin. They build a coffin, and the coffin he decides not yep. to die. Right? And it's like because he forgot he he had something to do back at home. <laughs> um, and it, it is uh, on top of all of those things. It's it's a Shakespeare. It, it, it's Shakespeare. This is a missing Shakespeare play, right? Holy crap! This is it a Shakespeare play that Shakespeare wrote that nobody knew that Melville had channeled him. Right. Holy crap! Right. It's so it's such a great play. And, and don't forget that it, it breaks into the stage a few times where we where some yeah. of the are theatrical, um, and it includes songs. So don't forget this is a musical. Um, <laughs> musical too, yeah. No, you, no. The, the the end is just so so phenomenal. When I when I teach this, I usually say. Um, I, I pick out the chapters that are basically plot and say, okay, guys, read this first, just so you get the plot down. All right. Mm-hmm. Just get there. And, and that includes the, the, the hunt at the end. And, uh, and the, the finale is just so, so apocalyptic. By the way, the, there's a little American context. The 5,000 years may or may not be a reference to the uh, uh, Bishop Usher and the crack brain idea. Yeah. Of, um, you know, the world being fun. But it's also a. Um, um, it, it takes you back to recorded history for, for mm-hmm. humanity. So it places, it knocks you right out of the human world and reminds you of this vast inhuman nature swirling all around you, which wins. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also nice for me, it reminds me of Poe, the descent to the maelstrom. Oh yeah. It, it, this is, uh, I was pointing out to everyone who would listen um, that he's obviously, you know, he's very familiar with Poe. Um, not just because of Descent into Maelstrom, which has that, but also um, what's the uh, the narrative of A. Gordon Pym of Nantucket has yeah, that swirling yeah. Um, yeah. whiteness going down, right? Uh, that is uh, the, the answer to what that is. This is kind of a sequel to that book, and it, it tells you it's death, right? <laughs> That's yep. what that thing is. It's death, and uh, how are we going to meet it? Um, well, fighting. That's how we're going to meet it. Uh, are we going to bring each other uh, each other down in 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 that? Uh, yep, we are. We're going to bring each other down in that uh, attempt to uh, fight death. Um, amazing, right? <laughs> Stunning, amazing. And you can see the the, the death metal love of this, right? But, oh yeah. But at the same time, we we'll go back to science fiction for a second, and we go back to science fiction through a weird way. This is like the Enterprise in the original Star Trek. Sure. Sure. Um, sure. For the mid-19th century, Melville was kind of a radical because uh, this ship is not American. It's a global ship. Um, mm-hmm. He takes pains to have all these different characters from around the world, from the Middle East, from the South Pacific. It's a lot like the Enterprise. And one of the ways that you can – I know this is because one of the greatest works of criticism <laughs> comes about through unusual location. Uh, there's a great Caribbean Marxist theorist – named C.L.R. James, who's probably best known for writing a pioneering book on the Haitian revolt of the early 19th century. Um, he was in the U.S. for a while, loved the U.S., wrote a classic book on uh, American culture, actually, which is still studied today, um, but got arrested and jailed for uh, agitating for overthrow of the American government, which he was. Um, so when he's in jail, awaiting deporting, what does he do? He writes a small book about Moby Dick. It's called Mariners and Castaways, and he has his friends make mimeographed copies and take these to as many congressmen as they can, 
because <laughs> he wants to persuade them that he loves America so much that he should be allowed to stay. I mean, it it doesn't work out, uh, but but it's one of the things he points out, and and critics since then have pointed this out too that um, that Melville is an incredible liberal for his time because you get this this is an anti-racist book where mm-hmm. you know you get jokes and jibes about headhunters and all of this, but it's it's massively cosmopolitan. And that's really unusual for the time. And you see this in another great, terrifying, terrifying Melville story. It's one about a, um, uh, a, a slave ship uh, that revolts. And um, it's uh, – for a long time, people saw it as just kind of a, uh, a simple story. It's called Benito Sereno. Uh, I don't know if you've read it. I, I, I strongly recommend mm-hmm. it. It's very disturbing. But it's based on a true story about a um, – a slave ship that revolted and uh, then came across a, um, a a slave ship, basically, or a military ship. So the slaves kept some of the surviving slavers uh, as um, props to convince them that the ship was still going on. So Benito Serino is from the point of view of that military ship that finds this ship. And it's very, very surreal um, that, you know, there's the captain who's Spanish who's like, yes, I'm fine. I have beads with sweat all over my brow, but don't worry. That's because it's hot here. And they're all the slaves who are just really acting very bold. There's a great scene where one of the slaves gives the captain a haircut and uh, carefully plays this knife around the captain's throat. The captain is trembling with fear. And our protagonist from this U.S. military ship is like, I don't get what's going on here. This is really bizarre. But the end of it, after they figure out the subterfuge and send all the slaves to be killed, you learn that at the front of the slave ship is the exhumed skeleton of Christopher Columbus. Attached to him is the phrase, follow your leader. It's, it's a terrifying story. Um, But you get it. You get part of this in the, when you said we're going to take each other down with us, at the yeah. same time, this is a great novel of friendship. But we'll come to the homosexual part in a bit. Yeah. But this is, um, you know, the uh, Queequeg salt saves uh, Ishmael. They become great friends, and you get all those weird scenes, like um, the uh, the sperm squeezing scene. Oh my God! One of you my. Gotta f- talk about that. I mean, because you get <laughs> you get this description of the universal. Thump. I, I just gotta read this part. They're all. This, this is the gayest book ever oh, written. Oh yeah. Oh. It yeah. is the queerest book ever written, and I am half <laughs> convinced just by reading it that all language to talk about gayness in our world comes from this book. Oh, it's 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 so awesome. I mean, not only do you have a bunch of burly men squeezing sperm with each other, um, but you get this you get this line about how they're they're thumping each other um let me try to find this um who ain't a slave tell me that well then however the old sea captains may order me about however they may thump and punch me about i have the satisfaction knowing that it is all right that everybody else is one way or other served in much the same way either in a physical or metaphysical point of view that is and so the universal thump is passed round, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content this is, by the way, from the barking insane first chapter with the best opening you know, title of Loomings. Um, yep. But do you want to dive into the sheep, the uh, sperm squeezing some more? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, there's a there's uh, I, I mean part of the part of the humor happens right at the beginning when we're like okay uh, so th- there's no bed for you uh, however um, <laughs> if you don't mind sharing with a harpooner <laughs> and, hmm what does he mean by that and so how is this harpooner right and he said well Ishmael says at one point um, uh, who is it is that guy the harpooner is this guy the harpooner um, and and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he says, "No, no, he's he's a dark scaled fellow. Uh, where, where is he? Oh, he's off selling his head." <laughs> <laughs> There's like little confusion. How do you sell your head? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And then he's, he, Ishmael says to himself, uh, "Well." that's fine i'll still sleep with him however uh, i'm he must get into bed first and he must take off his clothes and get into bed first because i'm not going to be the wife right <laughs> <laughs> what what's he going he on doesn't here actually say i'm not going to be the wife but but then a minute later when he's a cow a cowering in bed in this this uh, giant man covered in tattoos comes in <laughs> with a head in one hand and an axe in the other <laughs> starts taking off his clothes and he's about to he lifts the axe on high and then lights it right it's a pipe and it's like it it is hilarious right just that opening well, bit is hilarious and then when he wakes up in the morning he's being hugged yeah, by yeah. Uh, in an embrace as if and i think it says a quote something like as if i was queequeg's wife right? for though i tried to move his arm unlock his bridegroom clasp Yep. Yet sleeping as he was, he still hugged me tightly as a not but death should part us twain. Um, I rolled over, my neck feeling as if it were a horse collar, and suddenly felt a slight scratch. Throwing aside the counterpane, there lay the tomahawk, sleeping by the savage's side as if it were a hatchet-faced baby. Yep, they made a baby. <laughs> it's it's so good. Uh, you know, it, it's it's um, uh, it's kind of unbelievable to read now and think, how could you not... You notice this, previous readers, um, but it's it's there. I mean, this is a. Uh, I I think uh, 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 it, to me, it's so shockingly obvious what's going on that that it must it, it, because we don't hear between when this book comes out when 1851 or 1850 yeah. between that time and this time there is this giant block of time in which homosexuality is is completely taboo. Oh yeah, Oscar Wilde got in trouble for even hinting at stuff. I think like this is that. when the term uh, homosexual first appears too. Yeah, but like it, it's this has got to be. I mean, this everything that's going on on this ship um, is not a reflection of just his wild imagination, right? If you go away for three years on a ship, right? And I mean, one one of the reasons Ishmael is even going to sea is is you know he just doesn't really uh, he, he he doesn't like land. Right. Uh, he, he actually talks about, you know, all the reasons he doesn't want the, the strongest being. I think he he wants to kill himself. Right. 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 He wants to step out into the street and get run over by a cart. He this is his way of uh, using pistol and ball. Well, he, right? also, he also wants to provoke someone to kill him. Uh, I want That's to right. methodically knocking people's hats off. Right. Right. Um, with a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing right. surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feeling towards the ocean with me. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think, I, 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 I mean, I don't know if Melville was gay or whatever they would call it at the time. Um, doesn't have but, to be. I mean, it's... Uh, but, 
but his relationship with with thinking about this subject is astonishing. It's yeah. just it doesn't it feels like if this book came out this year it would shock and pay you know make make a lot of fa- faces still blush. Right. Or it just get uh, shelved in some bookstores. It get shelved, shelved in the uh, gay fiction section. Sure. I mean, it is. It's so obviously about. Uh, I mean, it's it's. Uh, so one of the things I had you help me find was uh, the. There's a scene where all uh, where Ahab, you know, <laughs> the old queer guy, <laughs> the queer old guy, comes up from the below in his cabin with his white uh, white leg. Made of bone, <laughs> white bone leg, right? Coming up, and he nails the the coin to the mast, and then the gold doubloon to the mast, and then he rallies the troops and he lines them up, and just like those that painting uh, from the second chapter, yeah, where you've got the three harpoons, you know, of masts sticking out, you've got the three harpooners lined up on the deck, um, with their harpoons out, yeah, right, and holding cups and he has them Paul. He, he is the, all their weapons are sharp and polished, right? Heavily polished. And then he says, Oh, how, how, how are you doing? Right. Inspects the troops and then has them fill their cups. And it's like, this is super gay. The, the, the symbol, the symbology here is super gay. So, um, I want to read this section cause I think it's amazing. And it has a word that I think you're going to you're going to go off on because I love it, too. Uh, Here goes. And since in this famous fishery, each mate or headsman, like a gothic knight of old, (laughs) is always there. See, uh, he is always accompanied by his his boat steerer or harpooner, who in certain conjectures provides him with a fresh lance when the former one has been badly twisted or elbowed in the assault. And moreover, as they. There generally subsists between two a close intimacy and friendship, a friendliness. It is therefore but meet that in this place we set down who the Pequod's harpooners were, and to what each, uh, into what headman each of them belonged. And so we've got the three, sh- the three boats, right? Uh, each with a, a, uh, a harpooner. First. Of all was Queequeg, whom Starbuck, the chief mate, had selected for his squire, but Queequeg is already known. Next was Tashtego, an unmixed Indian from Gay Head, <laughs> most westerly uh, promontory uh, uh, uh. in Martha's Vineyard, where there still exists the last remnant of a village of red men, who has long supplied the neighboring island of Nantucket with many of their most daring harpoon- harpooners. In the fishery, they usually go by the generic name of gay headers. You can't stop, can you? <laughs> no, Tashtego's long, lean, sable hair, his high cheekbones and black rounding eyes for an Indian, oriental in their largeness, but Antarctic in their glittering expression. All this sufficiently proclaimed him an inheritor of those of the unvitiated, unvitiated blood of those proud warrior hunters who, in quest of their great New England moose, had scoured bow and hand the aboriginal forests of the Maine, but now, but no longer snuffling in the trail of wild beasts of woodland, Tashtego now hunted in the wake of great whales of the sea, the unerring harpoon of the sun fitly replacing the infallible arrows of the sires. To look at the tawny brown of his shaky, sorry, his lithe snaky limbs, mm-hmm. you would almost have credited the superstitions of some of the earlier Puritans and half believed this wild Indian to be the son of the prince of the powers of the air. 
Tashtego was Stubb, the second mate squire. Wait, wait, Third wait, among the heart. Sorry, you there just for a second. Yeah, sure. Um, it you know one way of thinking about this book is that it's about modernity. Uh, it's about the passing away of uh, one social order and the rise of another. Um, mm-hmm. And you get a sign of that here, where he uh, Tashtego used to be this, and he would have been thus in the past, but now he's taking the sea. This is the science fiction part, right? Where we're seeing the future come about. So instead of, you know, hunting for New England moose, now he's on the ship, which is pretty high tech. Um, mm-hmm. Part of this global economy with his eyes Antarctic and their glittering expression. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, this is really forward looking, you know. So from the 1850s here, where this is the new industry, the new global enterprise, and, and he's sure. taking it forward. Sorry, that's just parenthetical. No, no, that's uh, that's. Ex- You've got it exactly. Uh, it just continues with one uh, more guy. It's third among the harpooners was Dagu. Dagu. How do you say it? Dagugu. Dagu. Dagu. Two G's. Dagu, a gigantic coal-black Negro savage with a lion-like tread, an Azari. Azaris. Azaris. What's that? Uh, do you know what that's a reference to? Yeah, hang on. That's another classical illusion. Well, in, while you're looking that up, it, we've got the three three harpooners who are all masculine men, you know, alpha males, who lead each of their ship, uh, each of their boats at the promontory of them, right, with all these straining men behind them. Uh, <laughs> and they're going after this giant female-like creature in the sea, right? It's... The sea is so female. The men with all their sharp—it's—it's it's a very um, powerful image. But like you were saying, um, this is the the high technology industry of the time. This is the oil industry of of the nineteenth yes. yeah. century. This is the thing that powers everything. You know, you never need to read another book about whales if you read this book. Technically, I think <laughs> because. One of the things that he says in here is, you know, how important is it that that the whale industry go on? Yes, it powers every home and hearth in all of the Americas and all of Europe and all right, that. Right. But beyond that, also, um, when you are uh, anointing a new king, it's sperm oil that goes in on their head, right? That that prince is cannot be uh, anointed with anything less than sperm oil, and it's it's like wow, and so okay. So what sperm? Why is it called sperm oil? Exactly why you think it would be called sperm oil because it looks <laughs> like sperm, and yeah, you, there's that scene where they are working the sperm, right, squirting it and making breaking it up and spending spending all their time so the, the hip deep in sperm and. And pulling their hands out and saying, oh, my fingers are so soft. <laughs> and then you're squeezing somebody else's hand under there thinking it's somebody, else, some you know bit of sperm that needs to be broken up. Oh, it's just my friend's hand. And then you touch each other lovingly under the, under the sperm. And it's like, wow, holy cow. He's really not shying away from this. Um, this is a uh, – um, one of my editions says this is from um, – Ehezerus is uh, – a king of the Persians and Medes who reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over 120 provinces, which is uh, the book of Esther. I think that's um, King James translation. I think. Oh. But yeah, this really is got the literary stuff going down. This yeah. is oh yeah. I mean, this is there's a library 
uh, along with Moby Dick, just to keep up with all this. Um, you know, this is a, oh, I, this is in a sense, this is strongly homosocial, right? This is about the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the creation of a wonderful, very positive family. And if it's misled by Ahab, uh, everyone goes for this willingly. They're all bound together. Uh, you've got, um, Starbuck, who is famously for, you know, skeptical of this, um, and up right through the end. Um, but they, uh, um, you know, this, they, they create this community and it's, it's very positive. And that's why one of the reasons this is such a tragedy is that, you know, you think this could have been, this, this could have served a great purpose, um, you know, instead of, uh, instead of a disastrous one, but to go back to the, to the whale for a second, and I, I, I hesitate to go in that direction because it's just, there's no end to it. Um, but the whale is also, uh, very, very masculine. Um, you know, in yep. the traditional Freudian sense, he looks like a phallus. Um, he castrates Ahab um, and gives him, you know, uh, um, a week. Um, so our our last attempt at this book ended with our digital leg getting bit off. <laughs> um, so we're we're going to go down down south and try and capture it again. Uh, I think this is a fool's errand, though, because I've done like 300 shows or, I don't know, 150 or 200 read-alongs, right? I've never had one that I've had so much trouble thinking about in like, oh, this will this will be a nice capsule sort of <laughs> way of talking about it. Or here's a nice, nice theme, two or three themes that the book is about. This is the biggest, most monstrous, amazing thing and it, it i i've never done shakespeare like i, I really like the tempest i want to talk oh. about the tempest i don't think i can talk about the tempest because it's just too big when we when we did um uh the odyssey we did it in six shows we did lord of the rings that way right <laughs> what kind of fool was i to think that moby dick could go down in one or even two shows that's impossible well, we should save that because we need. To, we should begin that meta note. And... Oh no, I, this is in the show, man. <laughs> oh, you, you did hear record. Okay. Oh yeah. Do you want uh, so we don't have to introduce ourselves? No, I think we'll just splice it together. But okay. you're Brian, I'm Jesse, right? We're good to go. <laughs> um. So did did I mention last time how uh, uh, I first read Moby Dick because of his class on madness and deviant sexuality? I think you mentioned it, but um. It's been so long, and I I'm sure we'll repeat ourselves at okay. some point. But okay, well, let me go for it. It's, it's a cute story, but then but then it, it comes right to the point. So uh, I took this upper level class that was titled "Madness, Meaninglessness, and Deviant Sexuality." I'm like, oh, I've got to take this class. You know, there's no way I could resist. I get into the class, and uh, it's crammed with students. Prof comes out. He's wearing all black. He's looking dour, and he says, if you think this class is going to be fun, drop it now. This class is going to mess with your head. I'm like, oh, yes, this is the best class. You know? and, uh, and it was a terrific class. The, the, there was a confusion with the registrar. They put too many students in, and he still made the whole thing work. It was a really good discussion. And we read Oedipus. We read Thomas Mann. We read uh, Faulkner. We read stuff about necrophilia. We were, oh, it was just fantastic. And every week, the syllabus would have uh, the title of the thing we're reading, along with a little bullet point about what was in it. So Oedipus, and we talk about, you know, okay, the complex and Freud, or uh, death in Venice, you know, age and sexuality. But then we did Bubby Dick in two weeks, and the first week was like the father, amputation, madness, 
meaninglessness, the void. It just went on and on. It was like a whole paragraph. Um, and I got to it. I, I'd never read that book before. I was blown away. And the prof told me afterwards, yeah, he tried to write his master's thesis on Moby Dick. And he couldn't. It, the book kept pushing back at him. Every time he yeah. put something down, it resisted. And he ultimately ended up going to therapy in order to basically just get out of it. So I yeah. thought, this is a dare. All right, I'm going to write my paper on this for this class. And I had the same experience. I tried writing about it, and it kept resisting. It kept changing on me. And yeah. I ultimately dropped it and wrote a paper on Vonnegut instead, just to be to get something simple. Um, but I mean, I it's true. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I would never even consider like just re- imagine even writing a like a a review. It's it's just pointless. It's, hmm. you, imagine uh, reviewing this came out too. I was I was reading snippets of reviews and I mean I think people are just a lot smarter back then <laughs> because they were good you know they were like even the people who don't know what to think about it they they think about it they they show their inarticulateness in a way that conveys the how hard it would be to talk about and um so I I, I came up with since we've we've already had you know an hour or so discussion i thought um a few ways to different attack it would be to do it from the outside um i i like to do this anyways so you know like i do uh the adaptations i didn't watch any of the movies um and there are a lot of them and and tv movies and stuff um but i was thinking about uh you know there's a new adaptation or there is an adaptation of uh garth ennis's preacher uh-huh. did you ever read preacher yes yes i really i really love preacher um i haven't read it since it came out and, and that was like 20 years ago right yeah um and so i watched the first episode of that and i i i don't know i don't think i'm going to need to watch any more of it but uh that's an attempt to sort of do a big epic story um, and I was thinking about other ones like that, you know, Alan Moore did uh, Watchmen, which is again, you know, foreigners coming in and doing the American story. Right, right. Uh, and and I thought, and I in the interval I rewatched all of Breaking Bad, and that is its own white whale story too. We had a little internet glitch there. All right, uh, so I didn't adaptations. Lose- you're talking about adaptations. Of- yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I just read the one of the comics. Um, and I didn't do any of the movies or the TV shows. I, I read... Uh, in in the meantime, I had read... Um, or watched, re-watched all of Breaking Bad. And, and I thought of that as kind of... An attempt to tell the white whale story too. How does it? Uh, how does it hold up? I've only seen the pilot. Man, the ending is so good. Um, there's, there's one episode that I think just brings the series down quite a bit. Um, but it's just so uh, such a great ending, and it you don't know at the beginning that it is the noir journey that it is. You know. Um, it's a lot darker than Moby Dick in a, a certain sense, right? Oh. Which is surprising, but yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know how to attack it from the, from the inside, but I thought, you know, something happens at the end of the book, 
uh, with the the coffin, and and then I was going back to the beginning of the book, and of course there's the Spouter Inn and the coffin. Is the coffin is the name of the family that runs the inn. Don't forget the uh, first thing that Ahab says is about going to his grave. That's right. And um, there's a story by Edgar Allan Poe uh, called The Oblong Box. Yep. You know that story? Of course. It's a few years before um, this comes out, and I'm sure uh, Hawthorne had read it and that Melville had read it um, because it was, you know, Poe and there wasn't that much great publications back then, so they got to have read it. But um, yeah, that, I, ends, I would, that ends. To, sorry, I, go. No, I was going to say, I'd love to track that down. The, uh, um, you know, this is an American Renaissance thing, um, seeing how these guys connected with each other. You know, you think Poe, Whitman, Melville, and uh, I honestly don't know. It's something I, I didn't study. Um, I mean, I read their stuff, I know literary history, but I don't know how they, their social networks. Well, Nathaniel Hawthorne and, and um, Melville were friends. Um, I don't think we know that Poe hung out with uh, Hawthorne at all. I maybe he did. Um, I don't. I don't have any evidence for that. But uh, we already established, I think, pretty well that uh, Melville had read at least the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Uh, with my uh, notation that the, um, the the one of the ships that comes in to the Spouter Inn has a crew full of uh, men from the ship in the narrative of A. Gordon Pym. Um, can't remember the name of that ship at the moment, but um, I, I'm pretty sure that he would have read it. And at the end of the oblong box, <laughs> there is a a full coffin with a man clutching to it, right? Nice. Nice. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. I mean, it, this, it's beautiful. This ties a bit into the 19th century anxiety about life burial, <laughs> uh, which which was uh, Americans were really interested in that. I mean, you know, Twain writes about it. Um, obviously, Poe is the most famous obsessive about it. Um, there's actually about uh, 20 minutes from my house, there's a 19th century grave which has a window built into it which is awesome you know, um, see how he's doing down there yeah unfortunately the the window is all bubbled over so you can't you can't see too well but uh, you know it's it just crazy all these ideas were crazy about trying to check and make sure you were actually dead that you hadn't been cataleptic by mistake um I guess this is one of the reasons why we count Moby Dick as part of the American Gothic heritage that, um, you know, you've got all these fears. I mean, the, like the Nostromo in Alien, um, you know, the Pequod works as a kind of Gothic castle, you know, it's mm. a, you know, in America, when, when Gothic came out in Europe, one of the reasons it took off was because you had so much great architecture, specifically, uh, you had military fortifications all over Europe. Mm -hmm. They started to get abandoned and uh, not taken care of, and they became these wonderful visual representations of power and uh, and the past. And there's a reason why the great symbolic act of the French Revolution is sacking a giant fort, the Bastille, uh, which was moldering um, so bad the crowd actually dismantled it. But um, in the U.S., there are very very few fortifications. I mean, I've been to the biggest one, and it's it's. It's really small, um, so we had to, and we didn't have any cathedrals, you know, all over the landscape. So, 
when Americans turned to the Gothic, we had to invent new stuff, which is why we have the haunted house, the house on Indian graveyard, uh, a lot of nature Gothic. And, um, you know, in Canada, you guys have a uh, prairie Gothic. So you go something, you know, some similar, uh, some parallels where you have to look at the, you know, the disturbing cabin and it's, it's not as epic as a castle, but you get to use the psychogeographical features of it to think of what's in the basement, what's being trapped inside, you know, this place of refuge or domestic space is being violated and all that. And so the Pequod gets to work the same way. You know, it's a place with, uh, with power of tyranny, uh, cause Ahab is clearly a tyrant yeah. um, of, of secrets very yeah yeah i i think that that's a really cool i mean it's it's actually better than any other kind of castle because it's it's so isolated you know in europe there's you know castle down every uh every road but here you've got a castle in the middle of the south pacific yeah um and suddenly you can come upon another castle um but it works really well that reading because um, of course, the captain or the owner of the house, you know, the lord, uh-huh. has a secret crew, right? Uh-huh. Secret occupants uh-huh. of the room, right? Uh-huh. So and uh, it's like Rochester having his secret wife upstairs, or you know, anybody <laughs> having skeletons in the closet or in the basement. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really fun. And uh, of course, um, <laughs> that uh, it makes me think of uh, the the other Poe was the moldering house story, right? Um, uh, what's it called? It's the most famous one of all. Oh, Usher. The fall of the House of Usher, right? It seems to be set sort of in the mid-Atlantic, um, because you don't know what country it's set in. You don't know who or what is going on there. And then... Well, it's weird. uh, It's, it's, you know, you get the, um, you know, Lovecraft riffs on that with, uh, my favorite story of his, uh, The Rats of the Walls. Mm-hmm. Which takes place in the same kind of weird mid-Atlantic imagined country, uh, mm-hmm. you know, part southern, part northern. You know, um, no, it's a we we love having a spatial grounding for horror, and mm-hmm. I think Melville just runs with it top speed. Well, the follow the follow house the usher though, especially you know it, when the house collapses, it sort of it does that thing that the Pequod does at the end of this book, which uh-huh. it sucks down into the earth, right? Uh-huh. It pulls everyone down in with it. And into whether waters. Whether they want to go or not. And into waters. Because, remember, there's a tarn around it. That's right. In fact, uh, one of my favorite Bradbury stories, um, uh, Usher 2, mm-hmm. it's, it's one that was included in the, uh, um, in the re- expanded later editions of Martian Chronicles. Most of the editions I don't like, but Usher 2, I just loved pieces. Um, the, uh, at the end of it, the same thing happens. The, the, I don't know if you, have you read this story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, it's a benevolent tyrant at the end. You know, he's a, he's a murdering, lying, cheating scoundrel, but it's, it's good. Uh, yeah. And it, it's also an attack against those who would attack, um, our sacred horrors, right? Yeah. Yeah, he did another story, which is not as good, um, another Martian story, a later one, where uh, for some reason a bunch of fantasy writers get resurrected on Mars and they have to fight for their survival. So you've got Lovecraft, you've got Poe, you've got L. Frank Baum. It's just not a good story. But here's the end of, uh, of Usher. Um, there, let's see. Um, my brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters. 
and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. So again, it's the water, you know, it's mm-hmm. drowned. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty amazing. Um, I, I, another way I thought we could attack this, this monster, um, hopefully to survive. I don't know if we can, but <laughs> to survive, um, is just to read quotes. Yeah, and have reactions because I think I mean that's what I was doing all all this time is just sending out quotes on Twitter. <laughs> it was great. Oh man, it's such a great book. Um, well, go ahead. Why don't you start with a few? Yeah, um, I, I love I love the soliloquies that that uh, that Ahab does sort of <laughs> at the end of the book. You know, it sort of starts with Ishmael, you know, running the show. Um, giving you his humorous sort of reactions to the world, and oh, I just love him. But it ends with this sort of like madness um, of a Macbeth or a Lady Macbeth or something like that, and it's just so sh- epically Shakespearean. Um, yeah. And it seems that Ishmael's—he's everywhere on the ship, right? He's—he's he's recording, <laughs> and you, you start to think meta, meta-wise, how is this possible? Um. But uh, yeah, I just I'll just pick out something and we'll just listen. Forehead to forehead, I meet thee. Mm. This third time, Moby Dick, on deck here or there, brace sharper up, crowd her into the wind's eye. He's too far off to lower yet, Mister Starbuck. The sails shake. Stand over the helmsman with t- top maul. So so he travels fast. I must down, but let me one more good round look aloft here at the sea. There's time for that. He's he's dying. An old, old sight, and yet somehow so young. Aye, and not changed a wink since I first saw it. A boy from the sands hills of Nantucket. The same, the same, the same to Noah as to me. There's a soft shower to leeward, such lovely leewardings. They must lead to somewhere, to something else that... that than the common land, more palmy than the palms. Wow. Oh, my God. Listen to that. Isn't that amazing? He's just he's just going off in a completely unusual space for him. I mean, he, you know, he begins with the, the, the macho, you know, forehead to forehead, I meet thee. Yeah. But now he's like, I remember when I was a boy and then tuck it, and I want to go to some nice country. Yeah. But then, you know, uh, leeward. The uh, white whale goes that way. Look to Woodward then. The better, the bitter quarter. But goodbye, old masthead. Was yeah. Green? He knows he's he's killing himself. He, he's killing everybody. And he, they've all sworn to it. Even Starbuck against his better judgment. Well, this is where you get the, um, yes, yeah, the tragedy of Starbuck is that he can't resist. He can't revolt. Um, and then, you know, you get this line, but I, old mast, we both grow old together. Sound in our mm-hmm. hulls, though. Are we not my ship? I minus a leg, that's all. I mean, so you get this, this is another classic literary theme of equating a uh, house or a space with a person. Totally. Um, and so the Pequod is him in this way. Yeah. There's a, the, another Poe poem uh, that is just like that. It's the haunted, is the haunted castle? Yeah. Haunted palace. Yeah. That, that the body is the, yeah. is the. Alice. It's um, he talks about you know seeing the the grains of uh, moss growing on the mast mm. in that in that section. So and, it's just a little bit of green, you know, like he's yeah. he wants to escape, he wants to live. 
Yeah. But, but also, you know, it, it, this is inevitable. I mean, the 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 thing that I was thinking about, you know, that sort of kicked me off on this whole thing to begin with was um, when I discovered that uh, Wrath of Khan was the first one, of course. Yeah. Wrath of Khan was uh, quoting something. Yeah. I was like, I want to read that. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, is it's a it's the best Star Trek movie, but it's also the least about what that show was ever about. I mean, it's a great movie, but it's not really um, Khan's sort of uh, obsession with with Kirk. You know, the five year mission that Kirk's on is not the three year mission that <laughs> that uh, Ahab and the crew are on. Right? They're they're out there to make money. Um, they think <laughs> Ahab's out there for revenge. If Kirk it was out there for revenge. That would have been a much different show. Right. 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 Um, but you no, know, it's, um, it echoes another episode from the first season, from the first show. The mm-hmm. one that I think it's called balance of terror. It's, um, the enterprise duels with a Romulan ship. Oh, uh, well that, that one I was thinking of, but there's also another one that has a sort of Ahab like character. I'm not sure the name of the episode, but, um, it's the one where there's a giant uh, sort of berserker in space. Oh, it's shaped like a Doomsday cone. Machine. Doomsday Machine, right? One of, my, one of my favorite ones as a kid. And the uh, Commodore Decker, is that the... Yeah, uh, and he just he jams himself right down its throat. Oh, my God, that scared the hell out of me when I was in the fourth grade. So. And he's got that he's got that sort of obsession. Yeah. He must kill it, right? Oh, totally, totally. And he says it's to, to, to you know, revenge his crew, but... It's not. <laughs> it's not. It, it it's it's in the same sort of vein as as Ahab's obsession. It we don't know why. And uh, the reason I thought of Preacher and Garthenis at the beginning was because Preacher, the Jesse Custer character, is on a mission to kill God, right? right. To f- make God accountable for right. for all this evil in the world and his his uh, absence. Yeah. All the bad stuff he's done. The author of the um, Doomsday Machine is Norman Spinrad, by the way. Right. Um, yeah, I used to like the, that music. Always used to get me that. Totally. There's also a great Cold War, you know, because it was about nuclear weapons. Uh, the, you know, the weapons that are, are greater than humanity and uh, can destroy us all. Um, the rest of that soliloquy, though. Oh God. Yeah. Goodbye, masthead. Keep a good eye upon the whale the while I'm gone. Like he's knowing he's not going to succeed. Um, we'll talk tomorrow, Nate, tonight. When the white yep. whale lies down there, tied by head and tail, maybe he will, maybe he will get him. Oh. But he doesn't, right? Uh, the, the whale lives on, does yep. it not? Yep, with uh, uh, a tied him, to him. You know, Yeah, I, we don't see. They're buried together in the sea, but one's, one's still alive. Yeah, when when I when I teach this, I I never assign the whole book to students, but no. I, I try among other things get the the main plot um, chapters. So the chase, I think, is some of like the greatest adventure writing of all time. Sure, I mean this is just so full of 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 things happening nonstop. Um, I mean, you know, the the dialogue is all action dialogue. People are responding to things that are happening. Um, you know, it's. Uh, um, it's just absolutely crazed. There's this, where is it? There's this great bit where uh, the whale appears from beneath them and bursts up. 
Um, it's just this little dot underwater. I'll see if I can find it. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, but then, you know, uh, the last soliloquy. That's just that's just astonishing. They went. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, stunning. You know, it's a reason why it you think about it. Too. It, 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 he he is not he is not afraid to make this book go all those places. That's um, I don't know. It's almost surprising that this book could even be written. That someone would have the audacity, you know, because it isn't like anything else. It's so postmodern. It's post postmodern, right? Well, it really cracked. I mean, for Melville, he just it just yanked his career sideways because everything yeah. before here, before this book, is really uh, much more conventional. I mean, they're 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 good. They're they're kind of adventure stories. You know, guy goes to sea and discovers the stuff. Mm-hmm. But from here on out, he just cuts loose, and he, he he's in uncharted territory. Um, I mean, oh, I love the the last bit when you say, you know, as the last whelmings intermixedly poured themselves over the sunken head of the Indian at the mainmast, leaving a few inches of the erect spar yet visible, together with long streaming yards of the flag, which calmly undulated with ironical coincidings over the destroying billows they almost touched. At that instant, a red arm and a hammer hovered backward right. and uplifted the open air in the act of nailing the flag faster and yet faster to the subsiding spar. A skyhawk that tauntingly followed the main truck downwards from its natural home among the stars, pecking at the flag, an incommoding Testigo there. This bird now chanced to intercept its broad fluttering wing between the hammer and the wood. And simultaneously, feeling that ethereal thrill, the submerged savage beneath in his death gasp kept his hammer frozen there. And so the bird of heaven, with archangelic shrieks, and the imperial beak thrust upwards, and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab, went down with his ship, which, like Satan, would not sink to hell till she dragged a living part of heaven along with her and helmeted herself with it. Yeah. That's, I mean, and the great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled 5,000 years ago. It's amazing. Uh it's it's amazing. You know, Tashtigo, um, he's I didn't when I read it the first time, I didn't realize what an important role he plays. Um, but I was thinking about this uh, in reading the comic book adaptation. Um, it's like he he's he's the primordial American, right? He's the forerunner of of um, Ahab in a certain sense in that he he spots the white whale the exact same time or almost the exact same time he says as uh, <laughs> as does Ahab and Ahab of course claims that he's excited to claim the doubloon which is crazy because it's his doubloon right right <laughs> it's mine i want it good job like, little good obsession. job captain yeah um, yeah uh and in the same way uh Tashtigo, um he 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 falls into one of the whales they had captured the head and he almost drowns inside the spermaceti yeah um uh, i guess it's quequeg saves him but it's it, it, it the head becomes his coffin there's so many coffins in this in this book in fact um right before the part you read there um ahab the ship, the hearse, the second hearse, uh, the second hearse, cried Ahab from the boat. It, 
its wood could only be American. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> it's like a it's a meta commentary, right? Yeah, but also pride. You know, oh my like, god! I mean, remember in uh, um, in Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon when they say, "All right, well, here's an idea: how we get to the moon? Well, what if we make an enormous gun and blast it into space? Well, who could do that? Oh, it's got to be the Americans. Yeah, <laughs> hey, it oh, could right. only be American. That's right. Nobody else would be this crazy, right? You know, to to do this so there's that little little nationalistic pride yeah uh, retribution right before this retribution swift vengeance eternal malice were in his whole aspect and spite of all that mortal man could do the solid white buttress of his forehead smote the ship's starboard bow till men and timbers oh. reeled some fell flat upon their faces like dislodged trucks the head of the harpooners aloft shook on the bull-like necks, on their bull-like necks. Though through the breach they heard the waters pour as mountain torrents down a flume. The ship, the hearse, the yeah. second. Wow. It's like he, he's sudden realization, right? Sudden realization. He's been slowly, suddenly realizing it throughout the book. What, what, what are we to make of the hidden crew? Because I... I uh, it made me think of the secret sharer as well, right? Uh, yeah, well, there are doubles then. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a thing, isn't it? Well, um, in a sense, I mean, you know, you could think about them. The hidden crew are all um, not typical Americans. I mean, most of them are from outside of the U.S. They're Parsees, right? They're they're um, uh, what we would now call uh, Persians. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, so in a sense, they kind of represent you know, the exotic to the homely, the, mm -hmm. you know, the foreign to the domestic. Um, they're also um, similar in that they're professionals, they're, they're experts. And this is a great crew of, of the best people that could possibly do this. Um, right. They're global as opposed to Nantucket. So I mean, that's one big opposition. Um, I think they're also scarier. Um, at least to yeah, they're history. supposed to be. I think. I mean, the the that there's a chapter called uh, the prophet, right? Mm -hmm. Prophet uh, says, you know, all sorts of spooky things, and then later on we see the prophet again. He said, "Did you see those men, those shadows, those uh, men going onto the ship?" And and Ishmael thinks, "Yeah, I did." Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of easygoing there. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, it is such a, a raucous ride from from one kind of book to another kind of book. It starts as uh, I, I swear it is a comedy. It's all about the humor, and it ends with um, uh, yeah, like a gothic uh, gothic horror novel, like like um, like Usher. The whole thing is or the uh, Alien. Yeah, you're right. It is it, with one survivor gone to tell the tale right well it's a classic thing to do with uh with uh, horror stories is to blow the whole thing up or burn it down at the end mm -hmm. uh, you know that that works pretty well um and you know you do that in part to condemn the uh, errors uh that some the crimes you know something has been terribly wrong um and you know that's going to be the uh, uh the condemnation of it i mean the the great um um, early gothic story um, 
fo- uh, Castle of Castle Otranto. Of Otranto. Yeah. It's explicit about it. You know, this is the sins of the fathers. Um, they'll be revisited on. So, you know, the simplest reading is you say, well, Ahab is being punished for um, this presumptuous quest for overreaching in the classic dramatic way. Um, and his whole crew gets punished in the ship because they're being dragged along because they contributed to it. You know, they tried, you know, they may have tried not to, um, like, you know, Starbuck, but they kept, they kept sailing. They kept on. Um, and that may also be a kind of biblical level of disaster where not just the immediate criminals are, are destroyed, but everyone around them in a kind of larger halo of destruction. Uh, so you get all that, um, as well. But also, I mean, I, it is funny. I mean, there are all these little nods and jokes and japes all throughout, just like Poe. He likes to have, um, the other thing that's great about the end is that so many things get hauled back down together. So many things get uh, brought into, into play. Like, you know, we see the sharks come back, uh, who are terrifying. Um, and the sharks are following like, like ravens following a battlefield. I mean, uh, this is the chase the third day. Um, Scarcity pushed from the ship when numbers of sharks, seemingly rising from out of the dark waters beneath the hull, maliciously snapped the blades of the oars every time they dipped in the water. In this way, accompanied the boat with their bites, which is cute. It is a thing not uncommonly happening to the whale boats in those swarming seas. So we, we go back to like the nonfiction part of the book. The sharks mm-hmm. at times apparently following them in the same precinct way that vultures hover over the banners of marching regiments in the east. But these were the first sharks that had been observed by the Pequots as the white whale had first been described. And whether it was that Ahab's crew were all such tiger-yellow barbarians, and therefore their flesh more musky in the senses of the sharks, a matter sometimes well known to affect them, and however it was, they seemed to follow that one boat without molesting the others. Heart of rot steel, murmured Starbuck. Um, poor guy. They have to go after him. Yeah, Ahab said to the tiger yellow crew of his, these words were best omitted here, for you live under the blessed light of the evangelical land. There's a little joke right at the end, right? Um, Ishmael refuses to answer, uh, refuses to tell us what horrible thing (laughs) that that, uh, Ahab, Ahab will do to spur on his crew. Yeah. I yeah. just love that. A little, it's a little like, censorship there. Yeah, a little censorship. Yeah, you you, you live in a blessed evangelical land. Um. But it's funny, too, the way he's, uh, and this is like the another Star Trek reading of this, is that um, they're called yellow, but it's tiger mm-hmm. yellow. Yes. So it's it's you're taking the racist stereotype and turning it around and saying, nah, this is awesome. Yeah, these guys are yeah. Oh, this is. Uh, this is the most anti-racist book of this period that I've read. I mean, one one of the striking things about Poe is he doesn't really deal with the what we would think is the biggest issue, right? You know, American American uh, pre-Civil War uh, slavery. Right. Right? He's not he sh- he should be all it should be all around him and obvious and you know in his thoughts. And there's one story. That has any mention of slaves, basically, and that's uh, his most popular story. But it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, the abolition or anything. Well, as far as I know, gold bug. Uh, yeah, the gold bug. Yeah. Uh, no, this is a but, thing. A lot of criticism of Poe that people will say, you know, this is a big blind spot and shows uh, uh, hidden racism. Uh, I'm not persuaded by that, but that's that's a pretty pretty commonplace argument. I think I think he's, you know, he's seems far less racist. Than Lovecraft, um, 
but I, I just think that Lovecraft's uh, racism is, is sort of of his period. And I think at the time, uh, Poe is, he's just, he's, we know what his themes are, right? Poe's themes are uh, deaths, death of beautiful women um, and maybe their return. Um, but uh, I would say based just on this one thing I've read by Hawthorne's that it seems like he's in love with every, every color of man. Yeah. Um, uh, there's uh, in chapter 119 that great chapter um, where uh, the the fire, what's it called, uh, Saint Elmo's fire, mm-hmm. uh, it turns the ship into candles, <laughs> right? Um, you know, prayer candles, death candles, perhaps. And um, uh, Ahab takes a hold of the links, uh, the chain uh, to the topmast. Um, and pulls out his 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 harpoon made from his own razors because <laughs> he's not going to need them anymore. He's not going to need to shave anymore. Um, and it starts glowing on the tip, and then he blows it out like a candle. And uh, there's a a reflection of this color blue in um, in Queequeg's head. <laughs> the the yeah. tattoos on his head are blue, and then uh, this line. Um, Tashtigo revealed his shark white teeth, which strangely gleamed. Um, Tashtigo, uh, his teeth are like it's they're sharpened to file points. It seems like, um, and I don't. I, it's just beautiful. I don't think it's menacing. He's smiling, right? It's not that he's he's threatening. He's smiling, but they're shark white teeth. Oh my god, so but good. He's powerful. He's and, powerful, and you want and, that. Yeah, absolutely. White whale, I would fail, would fain feel this pulse. This is when he's holding on to the chain. This pulse and let mine beat against it, blood against fire. Wow. <laughs> he's he's actually tapped into the whale supernaturally, right? He's he in the next morning, um, he can smell the whale before everyone else can. Uh, and he turns the ship. He's, you know, uh, three points to the starboard or whatever it is, right? Yeah. He turns the ship towards the whale. He, he, it's like he's in partial telepathic connection. Well, he's that close, that close to the whale. That that obsession is he's so, gone so far, which is why in the quote that you mentioned earlier, it's forehead to forehead. Yeah. We are the, and one of the things, just formally, one of the things that I love about the book is that it keeps changing from chapter to chapter. So. Uh, you know, we get the narration, first-person narration from Ishmael, which then fades away, and then we get theater, where some of the chapters are stage plays, and this chapter that you have here is a musical. But never yeah. mind, it's all in fun, as the old song says, sings. Oh, jolly, it's, like, it's like Thomas Pynchon does this. Pynchon like loves to break have his characters break it into song, um, and I just love the fact that you can have this happening here. You know, all these, uh, you know. People dancing around it—it's like it's like it's become some other form. It's it is it it, it changes to a play. It, it it starts as a comedy. It ends. As, it's very. I mean, he is he is as Shakespearean as I've seen anybody be. Um, Shakespeare's always uh-huh. doing that with the the comedy in the midst of tragedy. Um, starting with a few comedic things and then uh, bringing you down to the. The soliloquy of death and suicide. <laughs> yeah, really bringing into these people's minds and uh, extreme states of being. 
and and that's why I was thinking, you know, the you've seen Breaking Bad to the end? I've only seen the pilot. Oh my god, you got to watch it. It's right. it's amazing. There's one episode that it just really brings it down. It's it's sort of it's one of those ones where they, you know, they would call it a bottle episode in a regular TV show mm-hmm. where they basically stuck indoors the, you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing and they saving money and they're chasing a fly around and it's like I I got the idea, but it shouldn't have been an hour. It should have been like, you know, a three-minute sequence of, you know, that. So you can skip that episode. But every other episode, basically, is it's um it's uh, one of the one of the episodes is called Ozymandias. You know, mm, I heard that based on that play, and um, the not poem. the play poem. And in Ozymandias, you know, this man creates an empire and look at me how mighty i am right and then it's gone all we get left is the name and the sense that there was something here once maybe <laughs> um that is the devastation that that happens and it and it has it has humor but it is um it is a land epic in the same same way that moby dick is a uh, and because it pulls it off so well with its final episode it, it, indeed this this is the same thing it it's just it's it's great. And, you know, what's so funny is that we do actually know more of what happens about Ishmael after the book's epilogue, right? right. Um, because he's in Lima, uh, we find out earlier in the book, two years after this, um, telling the story of of um, what he overheard, what somebody else overheard and he overheard. And it's like, oh. So we already know that he's going to survive, of course, I guess. It makes sense. But don't forget, that's also the same city that uh, he earlier – it's in – I think it's in Witness the Whale. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. My favorite chapter is where he says, um, it is not these things alone which make tearless Lima the strangest, saddest city thou canst see. For Lima has taken the white veil, and there is a higher horror in this whiteness of her woe. Old as Pizarro, this whiteness keeps her ruins forever new. It admits not the cheerful greenness of complete decay. So go back to green for uh, mm-hmm. Ahab again, right? Spreads over her broken ramparts the rigid pallor of an apoplexy that fixes its own distortions. Wow. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel really for the 15-year-old who picks this book up in English class. And, oh, no. It's... Man, how can you... You're not ready. I mean, this is you know, you dude. I, 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 some of the sad. There's two things that really make me really, really sad. When I t- type in somebody's name, you know, producer, or writer, or something into Google to try and find out what else they've worked on, and the autocomplete comes up, and it makes me just almost despair from humanity. Is that it, I type in the name, and instead of like you know, writer or whatever, it says net worth after it. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but. Netflix. Just type in, wow. type in like just like some actor or yeah. movie maker, director, you know what? What else has this person done? Right? And it's like net worth comes up as the one of the first two or three options, and it's like, is that what we've come to? Yes, that's what we've come to. Oh, despair, despair. If we um, decided to organize global society based on the market, then this makes absolute sense. Okay. That's how you. That's how you tell how. Uh, um, a movie is doing is ticket sales right? or, exactly or when you call something how good a movie is is ticket sales right 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 i mean the new york times bestseller that's just the you know sales that's right that it's a good book yeah yeah um so the the other thing that makes me despair is when i i 
go searching for something about Moby Dick, and then I see the kids have have are desperately searching for answers for like the pop quiz that says what is the name of of the city near the Cape of Good Hope or whatever in Moby Dick. No, no, the teacher's ruining this child. Destroyed, destroyed. We're all the doomed. I know. Uh, it's it's uh or have you ever read the graphic novel Bone? Uh no, I haven't, but I, I'm aware of it. That's the you really the, should. It's sort of Casper, the friendly ghost looking dude, right? Yeah, but it's superb. It's a really strange book, and it's just it's it's excellent. I mean, it starts off as a, it's a funny animal comic, but mm-hmm. it takes place in a medieval fantasy world, and it ranges from screwball comedy to really creepy horror. Um, and the plot is epic. I mean, it's a huge oh. kind of thing and it is impossible to stop reading. Uh, mm. it's, it's, I really, really recommend it. The only thing is there's a, there's a, a sh- there are a lot of running gags like the, uh, there's three bones. That's their, their species. And, um, you know, one of them is a, a crooked politician who's always scheming for his next thing. And that's a shtick. You know. But another is that the uh, point of view bone loves Moby Dick and carries it with <laughs> him. And always wants to. He he's an evangelical for it. He's always trying to get people to to read it. And one of the jokes is, he, whenever he reads it out loud to them, they fall asleep. <laughs> like, oh oh no! But I, I want I want to go back to the the candles thing again because there's this great part at the end. I mean, you get more Ahab soliloquies that are just fantastic. And mm-hmm. then um, wait, um, the ship starts getting hit by lightning, and um, uh. Dashing the rattling link, lightning links to the deck and snatching the burning harpoon, Ahab waved it like a torch among them, swearing to transfix with it the first sailor that but cast loose ropes end. Petrified by his aspect and still more shrinking from the fiery dart that he held, the men fell back in dismay, and Ahab again spoke. All your oaths to hunt the white whale are as binding as mine, and heart, soul, and body, lungs, and life, all they have is bound." That you may know to what tune this heart beats. Look you here, thus I blow out the last fear. With a blast of his breath, extinguish the flame. As in the hurricane that sweeps the plain, men fly the neighborhood of some lone gigantic elm whose very height and strength but render it so much the more unsafe because so much more the mark for thunderbolts. So at these last words of Ahab's, many of the mariners did run from him in terror and dismay. Yeah, yeah that's that's the... The, it's it's like they're committed now. They 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 were committed before. They're doubly committed now, and it, it, that's the the turning point where he he takes on the supernatural aspect of of this lightning power, right? His what is the name for him? The epithet for him is Old Thunder. Yeah, which is why it was like you can see why they would have cast Gregory Peck, but mm-hmm. it didn't work out, and which is why Patrick Stewart is totally wrong. I think I I, I don't uh, that's why I didn't watch them. I, I reading the comic um what they at least do is they give you the scenes, right? They show you the scenes. It gives you the plot. But this is not a book about getting to the point of the plot because yeah. I mean I, I don't think we should ever see what Ishmael looks like. I don't think he never describes himself, right? He talks about having a monkey jacket. Right. That's fine. They all wear monkey jackets, right? Um, it's, it's seeing him, seeing the world under the arm of Queequeg in that bed. Mm -hmm. That's how we should see this, 
this book is so much a novel, even though it's everything else, right? It is so much a novel, it should never be adapted. And that's why I, I, I was like thinking of, you know, Breaking Bad or um, Preacher, right? Things that that are cinem- cinematic to begin with, where the storyteller is the frame, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with Watchmen, right? The storyteller is the 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 frame. In fact, um, uh, when I was tweeting out those illustrated illustrated um, quotes yesterday, um, Fred Heimbaugh uh-huh. <laughs> said, "I just realized um, uh, Ahab is the captain of the Black Freighter from Watchmen." And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's right. <laughs> it kind of is, right? Well, this is that, definitely an Alan Moore style book. Yeah. Totally. And you know, he's got. I, I was just, I just got an email saying, "Would you like the ebook for Jerusalem, the million word novel of oh, Alan Moore's book coming out in the fall?" And I'm like, "No, I don't do ebooks at all." But I'll take the audio book when it comes. Oh, you don't. I don't I've never I've never sat down and read like an ebook longer than a short story. It's just uh, I print everything out or read the paper. Um, I don't know. I I spend enough time looking at screens, I think, is what it is. Yeah. And I love to make notes in the margins. So I don't know if it's um, I travel a lot. I mean, like six times a month sometimes. And so for me, ebook, the convenience just really won over. Absolutely. Yeah. And I travel not at all, so. Except through your mind. I mean, oh yes, that's, Many a, that's another thing about this book that um, I really love is that it's a completely global book. I mean, we begin in Nantucket, we get all these extreme details of New England, you know, the individual towns, and I mean, one of the editions I have of this, I forget which one, has uh, has maps and it has a map of the globe, so you can see where the Pequod went. But also, had, oh, here it is. Yeah, this is the Viking? No, the Macmillan mission. But it's got like a little map of the whaling ports of, of New England. You know, so you Long Island Sound, New Bedford, Cape Cod. And then we leave that, and it becomes completely transnational. I mean, it's it's the most global book uh, I've, I've seen from the 19th century. We just have every continent, every country, every religion. Um, it's true. And you see it through characters. You see it through stuff. Um, the doubloon that uh, Ahab nails—that's a Spanish doubloon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, and then Queequeg or whoever is writing different chapters plunges into all this global history. I mean, it—it's—it's um, it's massively, massively transnational, which I really admire. I just uh, I had a flash. Um, you know, uh, Lovecraft's story, the terrible old man. Yeah, another haunted house story. Yeah, I think um, uh, the terrible old man is Ishmael. He he, he got <laughs> the balloons. That's where he's got the the sailors trapped in little bottles in his. That's right. In his, uh, oh, it's it, it it could almost work. He could almost be that old. <laughs> it, it might work, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, there's a lot of old doubloons in uh, Lovecraft. Um, uh, in the Dunwich horror, um, the the family has doubloons that they pay for their uh their their the cattle for the invisible son with they keep buying cattle for him to eat right um well it's good parenting good parenting yeah yeah there was um there's a lot that going on there i want to ask you did i do this uh in the last one does this sound familiar did i do a review of the book using the text itself no because 
Okay, so I found this thing that great writers sometimes do. Uh, Philip K. Dick did a review of <laughs> of The Man in the High Castle, um, I think, <laughs> uh, accidentally, on purpose. What doesn't really matter, it works. Um, by talking, having one of the characters talk about the... Um, the piece of art, the formless jewelry uh-huh. in, in uh, I, I think it's um, Mr. Tagomi. It's uh, yeah. Uh, no, I, Mr. Tagomi's uh, he, he's received it and he's had this revelation that it's a great piece of Americana. Right. Right. Modern Americana. And it, it, if you just change a couple words here and there, it becomes a review of, of the novel itself. And it's just an amazing Effect, and I, I think um, that same effect can be um, wrought from the uh, description of the painting in the Spouter Inn. And I sent you my illustration on Twitter. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, I, I, in doing it, I was like, oh yeah, these are crosses. Jeez, right? It's very. In this reading, the second reading through. Um, I noticed it's all the religion in the book that I sort of not noticed before. It's very um, uh, ambivalent about religion. It, it's in love with religion, and it also is laughing at religion. Mm-hmm. Um, they they go to a couple of churches at the beginning, Ishmael, and, uh, and then um, and then there's a, a great line when um, Ishmael's uh, s- explaining how uh, how Queequeg is is a really a Christian. <laughs> He calls him, you know, he's the first Congregationalist church, right? And then uh, Captain Bildad or uh, the other guy, Peleg, um, one of them says, ah, I, uh, he accepts his argument, even though it's clearly a bullshit. It's just that everyone on earth is in the first Congregational church, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and he says, you are, you are a... Um, a preacher yourself, right? You are doing a great sermon there. So I accept your argument, even though he's clearly not a Christian, <laughs> given that he's worshiping Wojo or, uh, yeah. Was it Wojo? Wojo. His little, his idol. Yeah. I love Wojo. Wojo's well, I think, great. I think I mean, one theory about, about criticism is that, uh, all, all works turn to comment on themselves, uh, mm. sometimes through their, their medium. Uh, so when you watch movies, you always want to look for when movies show up in the movies. Sure. Uh, like in um, um, Hitchcock loved to have people go by movies or go by movie theaters. Um, you know, and they tell you something about what they think about the movie and what, how it works. And you know, literary authors love to do this and give you a little literary commentary about how this can go. And they can do it for comic effect. You know, say, um, like, uh, one of the last things in Christian Machandy is, what was this? Ah, just a giant cock and bull story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a fun thing to, to see turn. Um, and so when you look at Ishmael desperately pawing through so many references, uh, the Bible, Shakespeare, politics, world literature, you know, it's the novel is doing this and his mm-hmm. failure to, to sound it to the bottom is also you know telling you that yeah you're going to enter this spiral yourself. There's there's a scene in in uh, one of the later episodes of Breaking Bad, in which the main character has built up this empire, this drug empire. His wife is is just 
like beside herself with distress. The son doesn't know, and the father and the son are watching Scarface, and <laughs> and and the the the, the father's having it? a good the, time. The, the son's having a good time, and the mom is just horrified. You know, say hello to my little friend as the world comes down around them, right? So that's the, the remake then, with Al Pacino. Uh, yes, the Al Pacino remake, yeah. Um, just like that. Di- with that his desk uh, full of cocaine. Yeah, it's just like, it's a great movie. Come watch it, Mom. It's like, yeah, oh, it's it perfect. is a commentary on its on itself. It's it's the American story, the American dream, right? In, uh, Come to America! A related show in the early episode of The Sopranos, um, Martin Scorsese walks by and people say, we love your work. You know, the gangsters say this. We think you're awesome. Right? Um, That's right. Can I, I found I found this one this one spot from the from the hunt uh, where the whale appears. Can I just read this? Because this is like one of my cinematic it. passages. Uh, so this is the second day. No, the first day, and the the whale has sounded. So the whale has gone down. And again, this just I, I for me when I was a kid, dark water always terrified me. Clear water was great, like a swimming pool. Sure. Dark water was always mystery, and uh, you know I saw things. I, I just, you know, I was, things are lurking down there. Exactly. So I mean, it's Gothic 101, right? It's, it's the greatest basement of all time. So the the whale sounds and is invisible, and so they're trying to find it. And Ahab says, "We're going to wait," and then uh, they find a sign: "The birds, the birds!" cried Tashtiga. In a long Indian file, as when herons take wing, the white birds are all now flying towards Ahab's boat. So it's a sign that they see something. And when within a few yards began fluttering over the water there, wheeling round and round with joyous, expecting cries, their vision was keener than man's. Ahab could discover no sign in this sea. But suddenly, as he peered down and down into its depths, he profoundly saw, little pun there, profound, (laughs) a white living spot, no bigger than a white weasel, with wonderful celerity uprising, and magnifying as it rose, till it turned, and then there were plainly revealed two long, crooked rows of white, glistening teeth floating up from the undiscoverable bottom. It was Moby Dick's open mouth and scroll jaw, his vast shadowed bulk still half-blending with the blue of the sea. The glittering mouth yawned beneath the boat like an open-doored marble tomb, and giving one sidelong sweep with the steering oar, Ahab whirled the craft aside from this tremendous apparition. I mean, <laughs> you look down, you see this little dot, this little white dot. It grows into a giant mouth, right? But Ahab is still so good. I mean, he's a superhero here. The last instant, bats the, the, the boat away. Otherwise, that would have just been swallowed up. Ah, oh, what a great paragraph. What a marble tomb. A marble tomb hunting for you. Yeah, yeah. Terrible. What's so amazing about this book, too, is that we never see it from the whale's point of view. There's no, I mean, if we, if we think about how the whale is the central figure, right? Um, if this was a Shakespearean piece, we would have, you know, the back and forth sort of thing. Um, it's, it, it's interesting that he, he could have done something there and he chose not to. And I think in so doing it, it's not a, a worse piece or anything like that. It's just it's just profound. Like it is a force of nature. It is um, nature fighting against you, right? Uh, the the lines about Ish, Ishmael's talking about um, the honors uh, heaped upon 
uh, warriors earlier, early in the book, and not upon uh, whalers, right? right. How uh, uh, warriors and sailors uh, uh, traditionally, you know, they're thought of as the brave and the mighty fighting battles, um, and whalers are just thought of as uh, stinky butchers and he says on the contrary our ships are clean and <laughs> and we fight battles no man has ever fought and ever could fight right no no lesser men could ever fight and um it is it is a, a battle against man against nature man against himself right um rather than uh man against another man it's well, it, greater than that it really is against himself. Um, the candles, oh, let me find that again. Where the candles went. There's this odd little bit um, where um, he uh, doubts himself. Um, he's watching the lightning, and Ahab talks about his family. Uh, he talks about himself. He said, uh, where, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? So towards the end of it. Um, um, Javelins sees them. Although magnanimous, now do I glory in my genealogy. But thou art but my fiery father, my sweet mother, I know not. O cruel, what hast thou done with her? There lies my puzzle. But thine is greater. Thou knowest not how came ye, hence calling thyself unbegotten, certainly knowing not thy beginning. Hence calling myself unbegun. Sorry, thence calling thyself unbegun. I know that of me, which thou knowest not of thyself, O thou omnipotent. There is some unsuffusing thing beyond thee, thou clear spirit, to which all of thy eternity is but time, all thy creativeness mechanical. Through thee, thy flaming self, my scorched eyes do dimly see it. O thou foundling fire, thou hermit immemorial, thou too hast thy incommunicable riddle, thy unparticipated grief. Here again with haughty agony I read my sire. Leap, leap up and lick the sky. I leap with thee, I burn with thee, would fain be welded with thee, defyingly I worship thee. And this is, this is really a strange passage. You know, he's worshiping lightning, sees lightning as his father, as his self. Mm-hmm. I mean, but his parent, I, mean, I glory in my genealogy. He begins that, you know, but he's, he's killing his father. Yeah. 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 And really there's, is. there's a great line near the end as well, um, where he, he despairs, he despairs at his life at sea, 40 years at three and three on land. Yeah making a, a widow of his wife um, in everything but actuality, um, not seeing his child raised up, not wasting his life in this fruitless pursuit. Um, and th- that sort of gives us the kind of impetus is like, well, I'm damned anyways, so best go out in a blaze, right? Sort of ending for it. It's amazing. Um, I, I do want to read this um, this review of of the book. I think from within the book, and I I think it's beautiful. It's just gorgeous. It's it's actually the very first few chapters. Uh, sorry, paragraphs of chapter three. The spouter in. Okay. Uh, of a of a book with what 135 chapters and uh, <laughs> etymology and an epilogue. Um, each of these chapters is earned. 
um, we could quote from every single chapter and not never be done with this. We could just have a oh. a podcast only about uh, Moby Dick and continue it for three hundred episodes uh, very happily. Yes, yes. Um, but I I do want to read this and I I, I really appreciate it. Um, Entering that gable-ended spouter inn, you found yourself in a wide, low, strangling entry with old-fashioned wainscots, reminding one of the bulwarks of some condemned old craft. Uh, there's also a, a church that's also a ship, right? This uh -huh. is a, uh -huh. a uh, this is a, an inn that's a ship. Yeah. On one side hung a very large oil painting, so thoroughly besmoked and every way defaced that in the unequal cross lights by which you viewed it it was only by diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it and careful inquiry of the neighbors that you could in any way arrive at an understanding of its purpose so that's what moby dick is about right <laughs> such unaccountable masses of shades and shadows that the first yep. you almost thought some ambitious young artist in the time of the new england hags had never delineate <laughs> chaos bewitched but by this contemplation, oft-repeated ponderings, especially by throwing open the little window toward the back of the entry, what is that? You at last yep. come to the conclusion that such an idea, however well, might not be altogether unwarranted. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's a review of the book. Oh, it totally but, is. But what most puzzled and confounded you was a long, limber, pretentious black mass of something hovering in the center of the picture over three blue, dim, perpendicular lines floating in a nameless yeast. <laughs> a boggy, soggy, <laughs> squitchy picture, truly enough to drive a nervous man distracted. Squitchy. Yet there, <laughs> yet there was a sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable sublimity there. Uh, about it, in that it fairly froze you to it till you involuntarily took an oath with you, uh, with yourself, to find out what the marvelous painting meant, <laughs> or the marvelous novel meant. Ever and anon, a bright but alas deceptive idea would dart you through. Uh, I love that you're being speared by a harpoon there. Uh, 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 yeah. It's the Black Sea in a Midnight Gale. It's the unnatural combat of the four primal elements. It's the blasted heath. There's the Macbeth. <laughs> it's the hyperborean winter scene. It's the breaking up of an icebound stream of time. But at last, all these fancies yielded to the one pretentious something in the picture's midst. That, once found out, and all the rest were plain. But stop. Does that it not bear a faint resemblance to a gigantic fish? even the great Leviathan himself? In fact, the artist, or writer's, design seemed this, a final theory of my own, partly based on, upon the aggregated opinions of many aged persons with whom I conversed upon the subject, Brian Alexander, for example. The picture represents a Cape Horner in a great hurricane. The half-foundered ship weltered there with its three dismantled masts alone visible and an exasperated whale proposing to spring clean over the craft is an enormous act of impaling himself upon the three mastheads. So much. And then he goes on. <laughs> um, but I think it, it's not this book, right? It, that's not the exact way the book ends. That's not the plot, but it is kind of Ahab's the white whale. Those three masts, those candles in my drawing, 
I I like oh it's there are three crosses on a hill right yep the ship is the bread the the sea is the is the wine the the blood of Christ and it's like wow when you start reading this as a religious thing the white whale becomes you know the lamb of God <laughs> in a very strange inversion of everything that we know about Christianity it it's it loves the sort of the the well, who's who's the uh, priest chapel Maple's chapel <laughs> right yeah, yeah Father Maple in the chapel um and he calls the congregants shipmates did you get to see the uh the clip I no I, I I I've been trying to avoid the videos because I just don't think I, I will watch it now but I I was trying to avoid I I downloaded all the movies all, all there was like Three, two miniseries and two different movie versions. Yeah, and I I just thought about it and I'm like, do I really want to do this? Do I want to? No, because I know what they're going to do. No, I just mentioned it because well, first it's uh, Orson Welles. Yeah. So you know he's like outclassing everybody. Um, but sure. The, but the other is it does a nice job. Of, it's only like a five minute clip, but it does a good job of showing you the uh, the spouter in with the uh, uh, the uh, priest's perch being a ship. And they have to climb a rope ladder to get up to right, it. Right. Um, you know, it's a uh, it's a nice job. Well, what you're saying about this this is so similar to the text, but so different. It reminds me of uh, in again in Phil Dick's um, uh, Man in the High Castle, where the uh, grasshopper lies heavy is mm-hmm. like Man in the High Castle, but different. You know, it's yeah. Um, in I mean, it has Eric, no plot. It, it, it's just a description of yeah of reality, right? It's, uh, it's just world building. Or, Alternate reality, yeah. Well, I mean, Eric, um, Eric Grabkin's uh, idea of fantasy as being this like twist on reality, where reality is it's not, um, it's connected closely to ours. You know, it's more like surrealism than than a total alien thing. Um, it's almost like these are fantasies within the novel. Sure, dreams of itself, what it could be. Speaking of what it could be, I'm I'm running a bit out of time here um, on the East Coast, not too far from Nantucket. No, I think I think uh, we we've had our legs bitten off, and it's so. time to replace them with bone. I think so. Um, I think so. Uh, did you note that the one uh, the one question everybody had about where about Ahab's leg was um, whether it was bit off below the knee or above? <laughs> <laughs> These are good questions to ask. Uh, it made me think that maybe, that maybe it was not a whale bone at all, but rather the flesh was taken off and it was only his own, his own ivory there. And that's why it was so upset. Because oh, that's a little disturbing. It is. It is very disturbing. Oh, um, disturbing book. It is, is very disturbing. Um, and nobody's written a prequel, right, to show that initial combat. <laughs> uh, there, there may be, and no one has written the uh, book from the point of view of the whale, like you suggested. So we don't no. have uh, uh, we don't have John Gardner doing uh, Grendel, right? And uh, right. Did you read Peter Watts's uh, The Things? Oh, what a fun story! Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a miniature. It's not a. Um, it's not a uh, epic, but it is. It's a. It's yeah. it's very nice. It's. It gives you the sense of um, of the reality there. That's a funny thing about that that the thing uh, the thing from another world um, is that it is it's um, it's a ripoff, right? 
I didn't think about that at the time, but it's John W. Campbell ripping off Lovecraft. Um, but it's it's his ripoff is not as good as the movie ripoff of his ripoff of oh, which which of which of the three movies? Uh, well, the original movie, and then I think uh, surprisingly, I think the uh, the prequel sequel remake. From yeah. a few years ago, it was pretty damn good. Yeah, I saw that last week. I was impressed. That was. Uh, I, I I don't know how they managed to not make a movie so crappy. Uh, well, to not make it crappy, given how badly Providence, you know, we're gonna make a remake of John Carpenter's excellent film, yeah. and they f- somehow figured a way not to ruin it. In right, in it's the, just retelling the story. There's one thing uh, they've but, never done though. It's in the in Campbell story that I always love. It's, mm-hmm. In Campbell's story, the base is huge, you know, like a thousand men, and mm-hmm. uh, and there's this bit where they're doing the blood testing, but because there's so many people, it's going to take hours and hours. So in order to keep the men entertained uh, and not panic, they show them cartoons, and I just love this oh. image, you know, these guys watching you know Mickey Mouse or whatever while you hear screams from the next right. room. I mean, oh, that's that's brilliant, and that's you know, it's a. Uh, but it's 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 a it's more hard science fiction. It's it's more like uh, you know, it's it's like Lovecraft of Walls of Eryx or something, where you know he's trying to you know actually do science. That's a terrible story, though. In the Walls of Eryx. Oh yeah, yeah. But, but it is him doing you know, you know, pure science fiction. What if we've got these you know transparent walls? I, I think I think you can make a very strong argument that that pretty much half of what Lovecraft wrote is pure science fiction. Um, it's just that his tone and focus are off, right? From, I mean, in the mount, in the, I was gonna say, in the mouth of madness, yeah. in the, in the mountains of madness, is a science fiction story, right? Oh, it's like it's like a condensed uh, Olaf Stapledon. You know, we've got uh, yeah millions of years of history crammed in, and and you find it, and in many ways, nothing, not much happens. I mean, it's mostly these guys. Most of the plot is these guys walking around the city, checking out the hieroglyphs and right. putting it together. Uh, or the shadow out of time is pure science fiction. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not even that horror. I mean, it's not even sort of e- even about horror. It has sort of it's a mystery of science fiction. And yeah, uh, yeah. Well, he. Re- I mean, you know, the guy was an amateur astronomer. He, you know, absolutely. Uh, yeah. was really obsessed with science. It's just that it's the tone, but also the the effect. He's, you know, y- you get all these nineteenth century stories like Poe's where they want to put you in the position. Of something horrible happening, and it's a kind of psychological science. Well, what would it mean? How would, mm-hmm. how would it, what would happen to a person's mind if they were being nibbled to death by rats, or if they were being put right. in a pit in the pendulum? Right. Um, and Lovecraft is following that, but but he's more lyrical and more decadent. He's he's not interested mm-hmm. so much in showing you what's it like to be pursued by the haunter of the dark, um, inter- so that you can know it. It's more just to show you the full fear and panic of it. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm finishing right now a collection of Arthur Machen stories, uh, which is making me very happy. Um, so I'm going to have to write about them. Incidentally, mm-hmm. the whole collection is suffused with World War One stuff. Nice. Um, and one of them is actually a World War One story he wrote that became an urban legend. Um, oh yeah, the uh, Marne. Yeah, uh, yeah, the Angel of Mons. Marne. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, Mons. He had to yeah. denounce it later on. Man, that that thing is so persistent. The, the, the these the myths that people take as somebody writes a story and it becomes a true story and then they can't kill it. Yeah, you cannot kill these things. Well, that's why I like uh, Snopes. Snopes.com, one of my favorite websites. 
Um, Absolutely. Well, speaking of which, I'm gonna let you go. Um, thank you so much, Brian. Well, thank you. This is a this is a pure delight. I'm just gonna fantasize now about the idea of doing a uh, um, endless Moby Dick podcast where every week we do another chapter and just recede into the future. I love that idea. I <laughs> I almost want to do it. I I've got so many other commitments. I I, I don't think I can, but I would totally do that if if I didn't. Well, I'll see you at the Spouter Inn. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Why, uh, why did they say, thar she blows, rather than there he blows? It's always a she. I don't know. I think, are always she. Are they comparing it to a ship? Which is always a she? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's lots of comparisons to ships, right? Yep. But I, I don't think it's—I don't think he's the only one who ever came up with that phrase, right? No, I, I wonder if if it's um, if the people are looking out for ships.